0: 1 Corinthians, chapter 14, verses 1 to 25. Follow the way of love and eagerly desire gifts of the Spirit, especially prophecy. For anyone who speaks in a tongue does not speak to people but to God. Indeed, no one understands them. They utter mysteries by the Spirit but the one who prophesies speaks to people for their strengthening, encouraging, and comfort. Anyone who speaks in a tongue edifies themselves, but the one who prophesies edifies the church. I would like every one of you to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets so that the church may be edified. Now, brothers and sisters, if I come to you and speak in tongues, what good will I be to you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or word of instruction? Even in the case of lifeless things that make sounds, such as the pipe or harp How will anyone know what tune is being played unless there is a distinction in the notes? Again, if the trumpet does not sound a clear call, who will get ready for battle? So it is with you. Unless you speak intelligible words with your tongue, how will anyone know what you are saying? You will just be speaking into the air. Undoubtedly, there are all sorts of languages in the world, yet none of them is without meaning. If then I do not grasp the meaning of what someone is saying, I am a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker is a foreigner to me. So it is with you, since you are eager for gifts of the Spirit, try to excel in those that build up the church. For this reason, the one who speaks in a tongue should pray that they may interpret what they say. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. So what shall I do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will also pray with my understanding. I will sing with my spirit, but I will also sing with my understanding. Otherwise, when you are praising God in the spirit... How can someone else, who is now put in the position of an inquirer, say amen to your thanksgiving, since they do not know what you are saying? You are giving thanks well enough, but no one else is edified. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. But in the church, I would rather speak five intelligible words to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Brothers and sisters, stop thinking like children. In regards to evil, be infants, but in your thinking, be adults. In the law, it is written, With other tongues and through the lips of foreigners, I will speak to this people. But even then, they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Tongues then are a sign, not for believers, but for unbelievers. Prophecy, however, is not for unbelievers, but for believers. So if the whole church comes together and everyone speaks in tongues, and inquirers or unbelievers come in, will they not say that you are out of your mind? But if an unbeliever or an inquirer comes in while everyone is prophesying, they are convicted of sin and are brought under judgment by all, as the secrets of their hearts are laid bare. So they will fall down and worship God, exclaiming, God is really among you. Have you
1: ever had the experience of attending a service and then getting into the car afterwards and turning to the person you've travelled with and said, I did not understand what the preacher was saying tonight? I left more confused about that passage than I did when I arrived. Perhaps, as we come to 1 Corinthians 14, that is a concern for you this evening, as we look um, at a a text where there are a great variety of different views, and as we work those views out, understandings out, a great variety of different practice in different churches. Well, that shouldn't happen. It shouldn't happen uh, that we leave church and we leave a service, having said, I'm more confused when I left than when I arrived because as we remember in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul tells us that meetings should do as good. Meeting with God's people, 1 Corinthians 11, verse 17, he says, "In the following directions, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. So the, the purpose of meeting together is to do as good as God's people. Uh, and so, um, with God's help, I trust you won't be confused tonight. And please do talk to me if you are, because one of the big things that the Lord has pressed home to my heart in working through this passage this week is that there is a responsibility upon all those who preach God's word to do that in a way that's understandable and clear. So come and chat to me afterwards uh, if that is a problem. But I'm conscious we've been a a few weeks uh, away from 1 Corinthians. We've um, been... uh, learning lots of helpful things in the parables and the gospels. So let's just get our bearings again and remember what's going on in this book. This is a a book where, where Paul as a whole is addressing two things. He's addressing problems in the Corinthian church that he's come to find out about in two ways. Some things they have written to him about and said, can you help us with these things? And some problems he has heard about and he wants to tell them about what they should be doing So in all of it, he's kind of troubleshooting a whole range of different problems in the Corinthian church. And in the section that we're working through, and actually chapter 14 sits at the end of, in chapters 11 to 14, Paul's great focus is on gathered worship. And he talks about a wide variety of different aspects of gathered worship. He talks about our our, our embracing the differences of our gender and the different roles then that that means in worship. He talks about the practice of the Lord's Supper. He talks about general principles in chapter 12 for the use of spiritual gifts. In chapter 13, what a challenging passage about the priority of love in how we relate to one another as God's people. And then as we come to chapter 14, Paul is addressing public worship, corporate worship, and his big point in the whole chapter is that our services, we should be seeking to build each other up. The word we use for that is sometimes edify. And that just means strengthen and build up God's people. And the chapter breaks down into two. We're going to handle it in two sections. Tonight, we're going to see in verses 1 to 25 that worship should be understandable. And then Next week, we'll look at verses 26 to 40 and see that worship should be orderly. But this week, we're thinking about worship should be understandable. And and Paul shows us how that works and presses home the priority of that principle of understandable worship through a case study of something that's going on in Corinth which is the use of the gifts of tongues and prophecy in the church. Now, the place of tongues and prophecy in the church today is a very debated question. And three weeks ago, James preached a sermon taking us through a big picture vision of the whole of the teaching of scripture on prophecy and tongues. And he explained two key things. The first was that tongues and prophecy are revelatory gifts, that is, through those gifts, God was giving true and flawless teaching to his people. The second thing he showed us is that God's purpose for those gifts have ceased. They were foundational gifts, and in that sense were temporary, because once the foundation is laid, it doesn't get relayed. Now we have a fully completed, sufficient scripture. We do not need further flawless revelation from God. And so, um, if you have questions about that, um, and those, that, that kind of big picture vision of what was going on there, please listen again, the sermons on the website, it was ever so helpful in seeing what scripture teaches as a whole on these things, and we're not going to rehearse those points in lots of detail. But, the implication that flows from that is that these gifts of tongues and prophecy do not function in the church today, because their purpose has been fulfilled. So, our question might be this evening then, what else do we have to learn from 1 Corinthians 14? And before we think, well, you know, it's getting on, please don't tune out. There's actually lots for us to learn because the key thing is seeing what Paul is doing in this passage. If this passage is about the function of tongues and prophecy primarily, then I would agree with you, That if those gifts have ceased, then perhaps um, there's not so much for us to learn tonight. But that was not Paul's concern in 1 Corinthians 14. His biggest concern is not the specific gifts. They are a case study of a wider principle. And the wider principle is that corporate worship should build Christians up by being understandable that's the main concern. And if that's the main concern, I put it to you, there'll be lots for us to learn tonight. So let's start looking through. We're going to see three things, three big points. First of all, that worship should not be confusing. Worship should not be confusing. And here we're just going to simply ask the question, how was worship confusing in Corinth? How was it confusing to people? And here we need to see what's going on. Now, what are the tongues that Paul is speaking about in 1 Corinthians 14? Well, James helpfully showed us three weeks ago that these tongues are foreign languages. And those foreign languages were a means of revelation. So, as we think about the book of Acts and in Acts chapter 2, when there are people gathered from all over the ancient worlds, the apostles received the gift to speak in tongues these foreign languages. And all the people there hear God's truth, the gospel proclaimed in their own language. And it's incredibly powerful because people hear the gospel and understand the gospel. So this is an amazing event, and there's as many conversions in Acts chapter uh, 2, 3,000, isn't it, added to their number. Now, in Corinth, the gift of tongues is also foreign languages. But the difference in Corinth of what's going on is that the foreign languages being spoken are known by the speaker, but not by the hearers. So that's the difference in Acts 2. In Acts 2... The foreign languages are spoken by the speaker and the hearers understand them because they come from all over the world. But the key to understanding 1 Corinthians 14 and how it speaks about tongues is that the speaker understands it, but the hearers do not because there is no one to interpret that foreign language back into the language in Corinth. Now, why do we see that being worked out? Look at verse 2. Down in verse 2, Paul says, "For for, for anyone who speaks in a tongue does not speak to people but to God. Indeed, no one understands them. They utter mysteries by the Spirit. So there is communication between the speaker and God because both of them understand the language and what's said, but the hearers in the church don't. In verse 4, we see that anyone who speaks in a tongue edifies themselves, but the one who prophesies edifies the church. So since the language is known by the speaker, they edify themselves as they speak forth this revelation from God. They understand what God is saying and it, it builds them up. And then if you jump down to verse 13, you see, Paul says, for this reason, the one who speaks in a tongue should pray that they may interpret what they say. So there's a really key. So it's not a local language being spoken. It's a foreign language being spoken. Revelation is being given, but the hearers don't understand it. And that's why they need someone to interpret. So these tongues are foreign languages. Revelation through foreign languages. What is... The prophecy, then, that Paul is speaking about and contrasting with tongues. Well, this prophecy was divine, totally trustworthy, and flawless revelation from God in the language of the Corinthians. That's a prophecy here. And the prophetic gift has always been flawless revelation from God. The argument that some have, and we're going to come to it next week, but the argument that some have that there is a second kind of prophecy in the New Testament that's based substantially upon some words in the second half of chapter 14 rests on an interpretation of one phrase, which I think is a mistaken interpretation of it. It's added um, to our translations um, unhelpfully, and we're going to come and see what's going on there next week. So if you've got questions about that particular issue come back next week but the prophecy here is totally is divine totally trustworthy flawless revelation from god in their own language that's what's going on there so what's going on in Corinth well the church has become obsessed with the flashy impressive gift of tongues foreign languages revelation without someone to interpret And they were prioritizing tongues in worship rather than prophecy. Those tongues, we've already seen, were not languages understood by the Corinthians. They didn't know what was being said. And so it meant that no one understood what was being spoken. And you see that in verse 2. Look at verse 2. Indeed, no one understands them. Because, well, it just all sounded foreign. They thought it looked impressive. But it wasn't good because the church was not built up through understanding and unbelievers were put off. So that's the confusion of worship that's going on in Corinth. And that's what Paul is addressing. But remember what's going on here. Paul is using a specific situation in Corinth to teach as a general principle. He does that again and again in Corinthians, doesn't he? Specific situation, underlying principle. And when we see the principle... The application to us here and now becomes very clear. And the clear principle is worship, our second point, should be understandable. Worship should be understandable. Speaking in an uninterpreted tongue helps no one because it's unintelligible. No one understands what's being said. But speaking a word of prophecy in a known language builds people up because it's understandable. So... Paul says prophecy is preferred to uninterpreted tongues. And that's why, if you look down at verse 1, Paul will say, Follow in the way of love and eagerly desire gifts of the Spirit, especially prophecy. Why? Because it's understood revelation from God, not a foreign language that no one understands. And verse 19, we'll touch on this again later. Verse 19, but in the church. Paul says, I would rather speak five intelligible words to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue, a tongue that no one understands because it's a foreign language. So the principle Paul is putting to us is that corporate worship should be understandable. Now, why should it be the case? He has three reasons. If you, uh, in school, study persuasive speech. you all know the rule of three. Come across the rule of three. And Paul uses lots of threes in this passage. So here's the first one. Three reasons why corporate worship should be understandable. Verse one, because that is loving. Paul says, follow in the way of love. Think of others. And here what he's doing is he's saying, don't forget chapter 13, all the things I've spoken to you about this great priority of loving one another. He's saying that should be the priority for the life of the church. It's not about me, it's about others and loving others. That's his major melody in chapter 13. And the melody keeps on playing in chapter 14. So, he says, as you come to gathered worship and you think about what gifts you should seek and exercise there among God's people, what should it be? Well, I'm not coming, My, my mindset in coming is not that it's just about me and the Lord and an engagement I have with the Lord in worship, it is about me coming to build up God's people. Me coming to edify and help God's people, because I love God's people. It's about the attitude that you come to worship. In chapter 12 and verse 7, Paul will say, in 1 Corinthians 12 verse 7, Now to each one. The manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. So spiritual gifts are given for the common good so that we would show love towards one another. And then in chapter 14 and verse 12, Paul says, So it it is with you, since you are eager for the gifts of the Spirit, try to excel in those that will build up the church. So the priority of love leads us to want worship to be understandable because we love one another and we want to build each other up. First reason. Second reason why worship should be understandable. Because that builds other believers up. And here we're going to look at verses 2 to 19, the major section, and it's all about how the need is for us to build and edify each other up. So understandable prophecy in the place in the situation in Corinth, is better because, here's another rule of three, verse three, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their strengthening, encouraging, and comfort. Do you see that? Purpose of prophecy, understood revelation from God, it strengthens us in weakness, it encourages in hard times, and it comforts us in sorrow, and so, verse four, second half of the verse, the one who prophesies, edifies the church. The goal is to build up the church, to edify brothers and sisters. And even when we pray, verses 16 and 17, if you are praying to God and you are leading in a prayer of thanksgiving, Paul says that needs to be understandable so that others can say amen because that will build them up. Now, in verses 7 to 11, Paul has another rule of three. And in that part, he uses three illustrations to show us how important it is that we have understandable worship. And they're very simple. Look down at verse 7. He says, if instruments play notes unclearly, you cannot tell the tune. And we are very thankful for musicians who play notes clearly so that we can follow the tune. He says, verse 8, if the bugler's trumpet and his blast this week then you cannot muster the troops for battle. It needs to be clear. And then the third illustration is, well, if you don't understand a language, you feel like a foreigner. If there is confusion and not clarity in worship, then you are not building each other's up. If there is no understanding, your contribution does not help others. And so, Paul's summary there in verse 12 is, Since you are eager for the gifts of the Spirit, try to excel in those that build up the church. So understandable worship matters because that builds up other believers and expresses my love towards other believers. And then he gives a third reason in verses 20 to 25. Third reason, because that brings conviction as God works to unbelievers. Now, this is uh, one of the trickiest sections in 1 Corinthians. So what's going on here? Well, let's try and get our heads around this. Paul is here picturing a scenario where a non-Christian comes to church and the congregation are speaking in tongues. Remember, tongues are unknown languages um, in Corinth, that is. So what will happen when they hear that? Well, Paul tells us in verse 23... The whole church comes together, and everyone speaks in tongues, these unknown languages to those people locally. Inquirers and unbelievers come in, will they not say that you are out of your mind? They'll just say, this is confusing. It doesn't make any sense. They'll leave. And that will be to them a sign of judgment. Verse 21 and 22. Now you notice there's a, a quotation there in verse 21, and it's from Isaiah, Isaiah 28. And that section in Isaiah is a section where God is prophesying against the northern kingdom of Samaria, and he is saying to them that he is warning them that when they hear foreign tongues, those foreign tongues that they're hearing are indications that invaders are coming down upon them. So when they hear people speaking foreign tongues around them, what is God saying? God is saying, Judgment is coming upon you because invaders are coming upon you. And in that way, Paul says, tongues signal judgment to unbelievers. In what way? Well, they signal this distance of understanding, they show this judgment. And so tongues then are a sign for unbelievers of judgment. But, verse 22b, prophecy is there. Uh, to be a sign for believers, is therefore believers. Now, what's going on here in this section? Well, through prophecy, Paul says, truth is declared so that people can become believers and come to faith. So, what Paul is saying here is that tongues don't help unbelievers because they don't understand what's being communicated. But prophecy helps people come to faith and become believers. And so the exercise of prophecy in the church, this revelation from God, truth coming from the living God, is going to help people come to know and love Jesus Christ because they will understand the gospel. And that's exactly what Paul describes there in verses 24 and 25. There will be a conviction as the spirit of God works. Look at verse 24 and 25, this conviction of sin. For if an unbeliever... Or an inquirer comes in while everyone is prophesying, hearing revelation in their own language from God. They are convicted of sin and brought under judgment by all. As the secrets of their hearts are laid bare, and so they fall down and worship God, exclaiming, God is really among you. What's being described there? Conversion, is not it not? Conversion, as people come to see that they are sinners as people come to feel their hearts being laid bare as as God's word reveals the sinfulness of our hearts. And then they fall down. They worship God in conversion. And they proclaim, God is really here. Friends, is that not what God's truth does when it is declared clearly and faithfully? There is that sense of coming under conviction of sin. We've just spent two and a half, three months working through the Ten Commandments on Sunday mornings. What has God been doing in our midst? God's Word has been laying bare your heart as you have heard those commandments. And maybe there have been weeks where, like me, either in preparation or in hearing the commandment preached, it has been very uncomfortable for you. Because God's showing us our insides. He's showing us the depth of our sin. He's showing us our our need to forgive us. He's showing us that we have fallen so short of God's perfect standard. What should we do? What should you do if you have been feeling that on Sunday mornings? Friends, you should do exactly what Paul describes here. You should fall down on your knees. You should confess your sin and worship God trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. Can I put it to you that God has given you that opportunity over the last two to three months to respond to his word? It's an incredible privilege that God would speak to us. Do not let that opportunity pass you by. Do not let it pass you by. Turn to Christ by faith. And so, for all those three reasons that worship that is understandable is an expression of love. Worship that is understandable builds other Christians up. And worship that is un- understandable helps to convict, as God works, of sin, bringing unbelievers to faith in Jesus Christ. For those three reasons, we should pursue understandable worship. It should be our priority as we gather. Now, in a moment, we're going to think about how we can make worship understandable as we use our gifts. But before we do, I just want you to notice, and maybe this has struck you as we've worked through, Paul's strong focus on understanding in this passage as the way in which we come to know more of God and experience God. It's very clear that Paul is focusing on understanding versus a mere mystical spiritual experience that we don't really understand what is going on. Now, I I press that home because so much focus in our day is upon getting an experience of God, even if it's mystical and it's not really understood. And we need to be very careful about that because that's not the pattern that Paul is putting forth here. We come to church to have an encounter with the living God. We come That we might declare what's there at the end of verse 25, that God is really among us, that we might know God among us. But we don't do that through means that we don't understand. We do it as God works through our understanding. As a a young teenager, unconverted young teenager, I attended a, a church where the focus was very much upon a special experience that you didn't really understand as a means by which he came to faith. I, I remember vividly being in a young people's meeting where essentially what was happening was we were encouraged, we were, we were lighting candles as a means of, of having some kind of encounter with God. And I remember in lighting the candle and bringing it up and shaking as I went up to the front, spilling some of the wax on my hand. And I went to the youth leader and I said to him, oh, was that God speaking to me? Because I didn't feel any pain when the wax went on my hand. Was I having an encounter with God? And he very wisely said to me that I shouldn't see it as that, but rather I should pursue knowing God in the Scriptures. A couple of months later, he actually left the church and went to a different church that was focused on the Scriptures. And thankfully, he pointed me in that way. Now, some people might have wanted Paul to have said... Keep on speaking in these unknown tongues, these unknown languages. It will look mystical. It will seem like an impressive event. It will demonstrate God at work in all that's going on. It'll create this amazing atmosphere. But what does Paul say? Paul says we encounter God first of all through our understanding. Look at verse 25. As the secrets of our hearts are laid bare, they understand what's being said understandable prophecy leads an unbeliever to encounter God so so our worship as we come to worship we are not aiming and please don't mishear me we are not aiming to be merely intellectual we want to be moved in mind and in heart and in will and in our emotions but as we come to be edified as we come to understand that is where it begins The route to that change and that engagement of the whole of the person is through the understanding. As God's truth takes hold of us through our understanding, as we grasp it, it then flows down into our hearts and our wills and our affections and then is lived out in our daily lives through our hands. Some have said that Christianity is understood as being about the head to the heart to the hands. So let's come seeking understanding. not just an experience without that. So here we come thirdly, to the question of how can our worship be understandable? How can our worship be understandable? Well, the principle's really clear, isn't it? Make contributions to that, that, so that worship is intelligible. Now that's not all that matters. What, is, what we do need to be faithful. It needs to be genuine, but here, the priority, the focus, and we're going to really focus on this, is on how the understanding is primary. And we're going to think about some areas of gathered worship. And we're going to think about them together, because there are things for us all to think about, even if we are not called to some of these things. So, first of all, how can our worship be understandable as it relates to those who are leading and preaching in our services? Well, for those men who lead and preach, all that we say should be clear. I said I would go back to verse 19, and I think this is a great verse for preachers to remember. But in the church, I would rather speak five intelligible words to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Remember, that's an unknown language. Better to speak a few words that would be understood, the many words that wouldn't. This implies that we would prepare carefully as we serve, and we are so thankful for all the diligence that goes into that. We see it in those who serve. But it's important that we think about it together as a congregation because our implications for those who speak and implications for all of us as we hear. So, as we think about the content of what is shared. Those who serve in this way should be thinking about the ages and the backgrounds and the maturity of those who are present, trying to speak in such a way that there can be understanding by all. Now, what does that mean? Well, it means that for us as a congregation, as we hear, some things that are said might seem very simple, but they're needed for others. And some things that are said might seem a bit stretching, but there will always be things there that can help us. We can pray that our preachers would have that goal of serving to help the congregation in what they bring. And the great temptation, please pray for this, is not that we would bring what we found fascinating about the passage that week, but rather we might bring what would build others up because that's the primary goal. In our language, we should speak clearly and accessibly. I remember uh, leading a study Uh, not too long ago, when I was using some theological terms without understanding them, without explaining them, and someone very helpfully said, Matthew, you've just used two words there that I don't understand. Please, can you explain them? We need to be clear and accessible. It, It means that preachers need clarity and at times need to use plain language, Now pray for us here as well because there are times when we need to speak about sensitive subjects clearly but not vaguely because we don't want half the congregation not to comprehend. So speaking with directness and plainness is a balance and pray for us in that regard. Those who preach and lead need to know people to know what they will understand. It's a biblical pattern that those who'll be teaching will be a leader who will know us and understand us. Because if you don't, you can't connect. I remember when we were in America and I was uh, training for ministry, um, was invited to, to preach in the evening service fairly early on. And I gave an illustration and I said, how would this passage apply if you went to work tomorrow morning on Monday morning and you got the sack? And the whole congregation looked at me with just a blank face. And they said, is that is an that initiation ceremony in the workplace? Is is that some like of game? They didn't understand it. And uh, one on them came to me and said, Matthew, we oh, have no idea what that meant, but um, I think you might have been speaking about getting fired. <laughs> I didn't understand the people. We need to understand the people, those who preach and lead. Know God's people in that sense. And as you preach and lead, you need to be looking around the room to see if it's making sense. Because the goal is not just to speak the sermon out. The goal is the sermon might go into our hearts through our understanding and minds and they be lived out in our lives. So in that regard, visual feedback is helpful. Here's something for us as a congregation. It's helpful at times to gently nod your head, as a number of you do. It's helpful at times to frown if we're just making no sense, as I know sometimes I do. Although that's not, that's because that's how I listen. So don't think that's me uh, commenting on what's being preached. <laughs> I'm working on that. Uh, but show it on your face. Show it on your face because, because we're engaging this together. And I remember preaching um, quite regularly a church in the north where no one gave you any visual feedback whatsoever. And it was the most disconcerting experience. And you'd speak to folks after, and they'd say, Oh, yeah, I understood everything you were saying. And you're thinking, I, I thought I was, just, you know, I was just going nowhere. And there was great confusion. And then also, it can be very helpful to give feedback afterwards about the clarity of communication. We can say things like, Brother, so much of what you said was helpful, but I struggled to understand what you were meaning when you said this. And that helps those who preach and lead. It helps us because we spend most of the week, or a fair chunk of the week, living in the passage. We've been churning around in our minds. We've been grasping as far as we can, all that's going on there. And we can forget that God's people gather, and you maybe not had a chance to read the passage. You're just thinking about it for the first time that evening. And so it helps us in giving us feedback as we preach. So in preaching and leading services, worship should be intelligible. Now let's come, and more briefly, to the reading of Scripture in our services now, I'm not going to get into specifics about Bible versions, but we want translations that are accurate because we believe the Bible is without error, as originally given in the original languages, and translations that are understandable because people need to hear in a language they understand because that worship must be intelligible. And when we read the scriptures, as we are so thankful for how many do this, that, that we read clearly, that we read with pace, that we thought about what we're going to read. Now, one of the things that often comes to me as I'm about to read the Scriptures in the service is that this moment, as we read the Word of God, is the one thing where God is speaking in the service with absolute clarity as we hear the Scriptures read. It's a very significant thing to remind ourselves of that, isn't it? This is the only truly inspired part of the service, Let's hear it with that care as well, friends. And then as we pray together, our third area might think about, well, in verse 16, Paul is very clear. The principle there is that prayer should be intelligible so that others can say amen. And we all know that a confusing prayer can feel like someone is speaking in a strange tongue. But if we're called to lead in prayer, prepare carefully. It doesn't need to be written out and read But think thoughtfully about the content and how you will pray for items. And we need to think in a different way about what we do as we lead in prayer. It is not that you are just praying to the Lord and others are listening in. It is that you are leading us all as we pray to God together. Do you see the difference? Think of it in that way. in our content, ensure it's biblical so that others can say Amen. And in the language you use, avoid phrases that are unclear or that could only be understood if you were an insider. Stuart Olliott used to say that we need to speak with respectful, reverent language, but our language should not differ hugely from conversation we would have with another person so that others can understand. It should be understandable language. And then fourthly, In our hymns and our songs that we choose to sing together, the principle of understandability applies because we're building each other up as we sing and praising the Lord. And some hymns and some songs have unclear or confusing meaning. And we're thankful that as a church we sing a wide range of old and new, and that's a good thing. And the test for the words is, is it true and can it be understood? Now, it's important to distinguish, I think, because uh, some hymns include biblical allusions, references to biblical truths and ideas. So, um, and I think they're good for us to preserve. So that the hymn, come thou fount of every blessing, has the line, here I raise my Ebenezer. And I think it's a bit sad that some of the hymnals take that out. Because that's a biblical idea. An Ebenezer stone is a memorial stone that reminds us of God's goodness. And biblical allusions that build our biblical understanding that perhaps we need to go and check is a good thing. But if the meaning is confusing and unclear and doesn't make sense, that's not helpful. We don't want a song or a hymn to be so poetic or vague that it's hard to know what the writer means. So if I could understand the words, if I knew more of the Bible, that's okay. But if I need to go and read the songwriter's or hymn writer's explanation for why they wrote it so that I can interpret it, that's probably not. So those are some of the areas we can think about, about worship being understandable, and things we can pray for as those who prepare to lead and as we all worship God together. But as we close, let's remember the big idea and the big goal. The big goal, the key verse for the whole of chapter 14 is that worship should edify and build others up. That's the key thing. Excel in those gifts that will build up the church. And that principle should shape how we think as we come together as God's people. It is not, and this is something that is so key to grasp, it is not that I am coming on my own to meet with the Lord and I happen to be around other people as I'm doing that. What we are doing as we gather to worship is we are building each other up as we all meet together with the Lord as one people in doing that. So it's not, gathered worship is not the accumulation, the the collection of, of many different private experience of worship that happen in the congregation. Collective worship is the body of Christ coming together who have been joined together through the Lord Jesus Christ to be edified as one people and so experience God's presence. That's the mindset. We are coming together to share together as we edify each other and worship God in what we're doing. And if we ever forget that, we just need to remember what heaven will be like. Because as you think about the picture in heaven, if you... Go and read Revelation 4, 5, and 7. You will notice that in all of the expressions of worship there, pictured in Revelation, they are collective experiences. The most powerful is in chapter 7 and verses 9 and 10. It's not individual experiences. It's together as God's people. Because what do we read? Revelation 7, verse 9. After this, I looked. And there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language. Standing before the throne and before the Lamb, they're there together. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands and they cried out in a loud voice. What did they say all together? Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Together, they worship God. Together, they edify each other. Together, They praise their God. So friends, let us build each other up by doing all we can to make worship understandable. Amen.